On July 4, 1776, the Second Continental Congress met in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Delegates from the American colonies had gathered to sign a Declaration of Independence from Britain. Following a brief preamble, the section headed, A Declaration of Rights, began with these memorable words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. As a nation, we pledge allegiance to our flag. Suddenly become okay again to do that in public situations, but we pledge allegiance to our flag, closing with these words, with liberty and justice for all. We are a people accustomed to asserting our inalienable rights. That is, never to be taken away, never to be sacrificed rights. The spirit of our republic rides on the belief that people must be granted freedom and justice in the pursuit of life and happiness. It is, without argument, a noble ideal. But we are also very aware that freedom and justice for all is only an ideal. It is far from reality in this fallen world. Oppression and injustice mar the pages of our nation's unfolding history and continue to spread in epidemic proportions throughout this world. All we need to do is view a television screen at 10 o'clock or even better, to read a newspaper and see that this world is filled with oppression and injustice. And this is to say nothing about what takes place underneath the radar of national laws, in the interpersonal realm. Out of the reach of law, we inhabit a world of oppression and injustice. Just think in your mind of these two concepts as they go together, oppression and injustice, and think of these words, business, churches, schools, bosses, contractors, landlords, salespersons, agents, teachers, parents, neighbors, relatives, classmates, siblings, children. All sources of oppression and injustice in someone's experience somewhere all the time. One of the first uses of speech for children is to protest some form of unfairness, some per perceived injustice. Brother got a little bit larger scoop of ice cream than I did. It's not fair. Sister did not have to go to bed quite as early as I had to go to bed. That's not fair. My teacher grades me harder than my friend in the same class. And one of the first lessons that parents must teach their children is this lesson, life is not fair. You can ask Joseph about all of this. We left him a few weeks ago heading south and east toward Egypt. Genesis 37, verses 2 through 11. If you'll remember what we have discussed there, we're introduced here to Joseph and found him to be a responsible young man, uniquely favored by his father Jacob. We considered that uh, there in Genesis 37, that Joseph received two revelatory dreams indicating that his brothers and his father would someday bow before him. In these dreams, God is asserting his will, and that's vital for us to understand the Joseph account. 
God is saying up front what will happen in the end. We consider here then that Joseph, having received these revelatory dreams, having received this favor from his father, being responsible, responsible enough even to report to his father the misdeeds of his brothers, incurs the animosity of his brothers. Now no one really knows exactly what these dreams mean. His brothers are intent on stopping it. Joseph is intent on finding out what they mean, but it's going to be an arduous journey and a test of his mettle and a test of his faith. For his brothers' part, they're bitterly jealous. They long to kill Jacob. At 37 and verse 12, they move to do just that. Joseph is sent to find his brothers in the providence of God through a tip of a stranger. He finds them in an unlikely place, Dothan. Joseph finds his brothers. He's probably very excited after this long journey to find them. They grab him, strip off his cloak, throw him into a dry well to die of exposure. But then Joseph is hauled out of the pit into his horse, sold to a trade caravan of Midianites who convey him to Egypt where he is sold as a slave. His brothers did this. If we let that sink in for a few moments. His brothers did this to him. His own flesh and blood, it wasn't fair. Joseph has lost his freedom. His brothers have treated him unjustly and stolen from him the independent pursuit of happiness. Now notice chapter 37 and verse 36 in your text, which reads, Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. And let's connect that then to chapter 39 and verse 1. 39, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, and the story goes on. So obviously the last verse of, verse th of chapter 37 connects with the first verse of chapter 39. Sandwiched in between is chapter 38 where the camera shifts to whom? The camera in chapter 38 shifts over to Judah, one of Joseph's brothers. It is, as we noted last week, a very bawdy chapter, a very sensual, lewd chapter. Two of Judah's sons are so wicked that God kills them. Then Judah hires the services of a prostitute who turns out to be his daughter-in-law, and he impregnates her. The sexual deviance of Judah displayed in chapter 38 is going to be clearly contrasted here in chapter 39. But let's remember, what is the overarching purpose of Genesis 38? As we come to the end of Genesis 38, there, are, there is the birth of two twins. One of those twins is named Perez. And there are indicators of his selection by God, even in his birth. And so chapter 38, if you remember this, is a flashing arrow pointing us to Messiah. Perez is the father of Jesus, ultimately, in the line of Messiah. Without chapter 38, then, we might lose our way and forget that Genesis intends to unfold for us the early links in the genealogical chain of Messiah. Now that we have that information, that flashing, blinking arrow pointing us to Messiah in Matthew chapter 1, we find that in Genesis 38. Now we move back to the story of Joseph in chapter 39. And as with Judah and Tamar in chapter 38, so with Joseph here in chapter 39, the story is bigger than Joseph himself. Joseph is the man whom God has chosen to get Israel where? To get Israel to Egypt. 
to providentially preserve Israel from intermarrying into the Canaanite culture and to stretch out the historical and thematic canvas on which to paint the work of the Messiah. Chapter 38 serves as a road marker. Follow me here. Chapter 38, then, is a road marker pointing us to who Messiah is, the son of Judah through Perez. Chapter 39 is a road marker then pointing us to what Messiah will do. Namely, redeem his people from bondage. Israel from Egypt as the paradigm for understanding the ultimate uh, deliverance. God's people from the bonds of sin. As we move to chapter 39, I'd like us first to look back and remember one more thing. Chapter 15 and verse 12. There is an amazing prophecy here. An amazing prophecy. I've been listening to a tape of a, just recently of a, uh, several individuals who are teaching that God makes bold statements like this and sometimes gets it wrong. Because he doesn't really know the future and he's kind of figuring things out as it goes, as people do what they do. He makes these bold statements like this, sticks his neck out, and then finds sometimes that he's wrong. You read a passage like this, and it makes absolutely no sense at all. Notice what is said here. Remember this, Genesis 15, God speaking to Abraham as the sun was setting, Genesis 15, 12. Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be as strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come, up, come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. This is Abraham. After Abraham comes Isaac. After Isaac comes Jacob. And the son of Jacob is Joseph. And God has to get Israel to Egypt. And by the way, if it's not crystal clear, he isn't shooting in the dark here. They're going to be enslaved for 400 years. Pretty clear prophecy. Joseph is the man. Joseph is the link. His beating heart is the one person, the one individual, the one link between Palestine and Egypt, where God will take his people to set up the canvas of redemption on which to paint the work of the Messiah. But though God prophesied this, Joseph does not arrive in Egypt in an air-conditioned limo. He arrives in a caravan as a slave of in, injustice, oppression, slavery. It's wickedness on the part of those who have subjected him. Joseph has been stripped of all that he's known, ripped from his homeland and his beloved father. He, belongs to, he, he longs to see his father. He longs to see his little brother, Benjamin. How were they? How were they handling this news? What did his brothers ever tell his father? He doesn't know any of this. If he could only embrace his father again and just once whisper in his ear that he was all right, but it's all gone. He's been transported to a new world and he has lost everything 
He is the victim of these circumstances. How many times he must have replayed in his mind the scene of his brother's betrayal and puzzled over their bitter jealousy toward him. It was liberty and justice for some in this world, oppression and injustice for others. Betrayed by his brothers, ripped from his home, he arrives in Egypt with a heavy heart and must now survive on the promises of God alone. But in the midst of this oppression, we hear a word from the narrator, from the author Moses, beginning at verse 1, saying that Joseph is blessed in the house of Potiphar. This is the primary point of these first six verses. Notice verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard who bought him from the Ishmaelites, had taken him from there. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. These verses are Moses' commentary, I believe, on the first years of Joseph's life in Egypt. They're vital words because everything that we can see at this point, we would say Joseph is cursed. God is gone. God is nowhere in these pages. Everything is going wrong. It's injustice and oppression. And the path to happiness is completely blocked. No, says Moses, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. Where? In Egypt. Where? In slavery. Could a guy run into any more bad luck? No, assures Moses, this is not bad luck. This is divine providence at work. As verse 1 indicates, God's hand of blessing is upon Joseph. He's taken by a high official in Egypt, and his life will be now lived in relative luxury. Right from the get-go, we see this, that God is working in a unique way and aiding Joseph in all of this. Potiphar is a captain of the guard. It's a high military position in a militaristic society, arguably the most powerful nation on earth at this time. This is quite a turn of events. He moves from his father's tents into the palatial palace, into this uh, house of Potiphar. Verse 2, it says that the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Not outside, not in some other barracks, but he lives there in the house. This captures the essence of the Joseph story in a phrase. This is what it's all about from here to chapter 50. The Lord was with Joseph. It is a story of misery and suffering and oppression. And all through this phrase, arches over it, the Lord was with Joseph. Now we need to read that phrase very carefully because it ties us, I believe, very specifically back to the patriarchs. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the key in their lives was that God was with them and prospered them. And so here with Joseph, even in slavery. Just as God prospered Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the fulfillment of his covenant promises, so God prospers Joseph in slavery. He's in the house. That is, he's chosen, it would appear here already and certainly later, for a position of administrative importance in this prestigious household. Verse 3, When the master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. 
Do we find Joseph pouting? No, we find an energetic man determined to serve his master with skill and wisdom. Do we find Joseph sulking, cutting corners in rebellion, saying under his breath, I'm not supposed to be here, I'm not supposed to be here. No, we find a young man walking in fellowship with God. Although the revisionist historians of our day would never admit it, the Bible was really one of the most important, if not the most important element in the abolition of slavery. But knowing that we live in an unfair, oppressive, unjust world, the Bible calls upon slaves not to rebel. When you're under oppression, when you're facing injustice, when you have been unfairly enslaved, God's Word does not deny the oppression, but it says this in Ephesians 6, Slaves, obey your masters with respect and fear. And with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ, obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes are on you, but like slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. Many centuries before Paul's words were inscripturated, Joseph served in that very spirit, and his master took notice. Verse 3. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that he gave him success in everything that he did. There's a parallel here to, again, Abraham and Isaac. In chapter 21, 22, and 26, 28, both of these patriarchs, their prosperity is noticed by a watching pagan world. And so with Joseph, Potiphar sees. So verse 4, Potiphar acts. He entrusts Joseph's care to Joseph's care everything that he owned. Literally, he made him overseer over his house and gave everything into his hand. I'd like to jump forward just a moment to verse 6. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. I believe that's a figure of speech, meaning everything. No, I, I, nobody that I know of, unless they're absolutely physically incapacitated, wants anybody to put food in their mouth. Uh, maybe there's some rare exceptions somewhere, but we enjoy eating and we enjoy putting it in our mouth ourselves. That is a figure of speech. He ate his food, but nothing. He worried about nothing. He gave everything to Joseph to take care of. He's in charge of Potiphar's house. Administrative position with tremendous responsibilities, and Joseph handles it. It's interesting to note that ancient documents confirm that Egyptian lords commonly put Oriental slaves in the highest positions in the households, leaving the lower positions for their fellow Egyptian slaves. There's a lot of psychology that probably goes into that. We won't get into it, but it's just interesting to note that archaeology confirms what we see here. In, in, uh, but the turn of events from God is that he's in Potiphar's house, and Joseph has great responsibilities there. Let's go back to verse 5 then and notice what happens under his care. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. 
The Hebrew reads, from the time he made him overseer in his house. We see again then God's covenant promise to Abraham. What did he say to Abraham? I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. We see the beginnings of that blessing. Joseph in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's house prospers. Not only Joseph, but even Potiphar. And Potiphar knows it. Now if we aren't careful here, we almost start to lose sight of Joseph's suffering. Coupled to the emotional pain of being betrayed by his brothers and separated from his grieving father, he had the troublesome task of negotiating a very unfamiliar culture. We're not sure exactly how much time passes here. But he had to learn to speak a new language. He had to learn to dress and to groom himself in a different manner. He had to learn to enjoy different kinds of food and practice new customs. He had to learn a new occupation. Remember, Joseph was a shepherd, a young man accustomed to leading and feeding and caring for sheep out in the fields of Palestine. This shepherd boy had to quickly learn to navigate the intricacies of Egyptian protocol and etiquette. This was no easy call. It was hard. It was unfair. But God was with him. And Joseph tore into life and worked for the glory of God from the day he arrived in Egypt. But more importantly, it's really not so much that Joseph is working for God, it's that God was prospering Joseph and Potiphar. Many scenarios could have taken place here. Joseph could have fallen on Potiphar's bad side right off the beginning. Joseph could have struggled to learn his new job and could have run into any number of problems. He could have had health problems which just limited him from rising. He could have ran into jealous slaves who made life miserable for him and told lies about him. But God was at work to prosper Joseph in the midst of oppression and injustice. Give Joseph an opportunity to run home and I bet he would book the first flight back to Palestine. He'd be out of there in a minute. But given the circumstances and the situation, he rolled up his sleeves and he worked hard. It wasn't fair, but God's grace was working and moving. We encounter next then a very strange statement at verse 6, which the NIV here in this text puts with what follows. It just says very simply, now Joseph was well built and handsome. Where did that come from? What does that have to do with anything that's going on here? He's Hebrew reading, he's handsome of form and he's handsome of sight. Alter cleverly brings out the point this way by saying, this is a warning in the midst of blessing. A warning in the midst of blessing that Joseph may suffer from one endowment too many. And that's where we head. So the narrator is done speaking. Joseph is blessed in the house of Potiphar by God. We move now to a new scene, and that is the narrative itself taking place, the story unwinding itself, and we see here Joseph betrayed by the wife of Potiphar, beginning, beginning at verse 7. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. That's the direct approach. I'm sure that uh, her Hebrew words, just two in number, the best we can get to it is lie with me. I'm sure she probably said more, but that's the gist of her appeal. Come to bed with me. Lie with me. She is not relying on innuendo. She's not hinting. 
at her intentions. She's taken a look, good look at Joseph and allowed desire to rule her heart, and she makes it crystal clear what she wants. She lifted up her eyes to Joseph, the Hebrew text reads. It's a figure of speech referring to desire. And let me tell you, Joseph is in deep waters. He's in trouble. He is very vulnerable. The young man does not stand a chance. He's a young, red-blooded man, strong, good-looking, and by all accounts, virile. But beyond the obvious, there is also much more going on here. Beyond the natural lust that we might consider, there's the lust to encourage admiration and respect. Who finds it natural to turn away a grand compliment? Further, he was the slave, and she was the master. There could well have been a sense of duty. In fact, slave cultures were notoriously promiscuous, and Joseph may have been very much expected to yield to her wishes. From what we've seen thus far in Genesis, we're not holding our breath, are we? Think of Genesis 38. That's still echoing in our ears. A woman who's not very skilled in her trade plays the part of a prostitute on the side of a road, and Judah can't even look the other way. We expect Joseph to cave in. Everything is pitted against him here. This is no Judah temptation. This is a horrifying situation from which it would appear Joseph will never escape. But the next verse is filled with amazing grace, and it bears witness to just how thoroughly God was blessing Joseph. Verse 8, But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Do you read that as an extemporaneous speech? A speech just off the top of his head? Kind of sounds rehearsed, doesn't it? And particularly in parallel with her, lie with me speech. Now, I don't know. It's just suspicion on my part, but it seems to me that he's rehearsed this. And it seems to me that her intentions have been made clear probably for an extended period of time, and he knows what his defense is going to be beforehand. And there was probably then a day when she comes with a verbal solicitation and he's ready for her. She's now spoken to him. It is now appropriate for him as a slave to speak to her, and he has his speech ready. What is his point? I think there's, it's a twofold address. First of all, my master, your husband, has entrusted me with every responsibility. He's put it all in my hands. Yes, I have the run of the place, but I'm not going to betray his trust in me. You are off limits because of your husband. And woman, says Joseph, to paraphrase, please know that I serve not only an earthly master, but a heavenly one. If human fidelity compels me to respect the earthly master, dread, fear, and joyous worship stops me from dishonoring my heavenly Lord. The issue is that God is our creator and he has laws. To agree with you, I would have to disobey him and I will not do that for anyone. No, Joseph did not stand a chance, but he did receive grace and that's what matters. 
God was with Joseph. Joseph's focus was on the Lord, who in the words of Jude is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. This was a victory as nearly as great as Genesis 22 in Abraham's offering of Isaac. It was a step of tremendous faith. It's a great speech. But it was for Joseph one victorious battle, not the end of the war, verse 10. And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her again, to lie with her, or to even be with her. Day after day, he, she pressed him to yield to natural desires. And day after day, he stood like a rock. Leaving Canaan was misery. But he had to admit that life as a slave was going very well for him. And then his world was shaken. Night after night, Joseph pillows his head with far more than administrative worries to keep him awake. This was a nightmare. His world had turned ugly. On the one hand was an available woman, adorned with all the beautifying advantages of Egyptian wealth. She was there for the taking. His hormones raged. His head spun. But on the other hand was his conscience, his integrity, his master's honor, and the law of God written on his heart and the source of his joy and his hope. Now we, we have to, we don't read this from a slave-oriented culture, praise God, but we need to do so as we read it. We need to understand that Joseph has no opportunity to report to his master. We've even seen that in various places, in other contexts in Scripture, where to approach a king could mean death. If he didn't like the way you smelled at the moment or the way that you looked at him, you were just dead on the spot if he hadn't asked you to come into his presence. Now, Potiphar's not Pharaoh here, but he has tremendous powers. And understanding the intricacies of slavery, we would say Joseph has no ability to go and to appeal to Potiphar and to say, I need to report to you about your wife. That's not an option here. He's a slave. He's a breathing tool. Tools don't talk back. That was the rule. And so he has nothing to say to Potiphar. And he must have wondered over and over again as he dealt with this temptation day after day, why has this happened to me? What can God mean in all of this? And I was beginning to see the picture maybe of the dreams as I rise to prominence in Potiphar's house, but how this? How does this play into the picture? Well, in God's providence, though Joseph may have wished it all away, it didn't go away. Not at all. Verse 11. One day he went into the house to attend his duties. He's in his work. Not foolishly putting himself in the place of temptation. But he goes to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. Well, at this point, Potiphar's wife had become crazed with desire for Joseph. In verse 12, she caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. Lie with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Cloak is a broad term, probably referring here to his outer cloak, leaving him to flee in an undergarment, something roughly equivalent to a man's underpants. As he runs from the house, as now a common slave. 
It was a horrifying temptation, and the success is not realized until right now. Joseph has stood. He has stood on the basis of principle. He has stood on the basis of his relationship to God, and it's here now that the victory is complete. He runs from the greatest solicitation and temptation. Let's stop for a moment. I think this passage is about much more than this temptation, but obviously the text of Scripture takes a lot of space to focus our attention on temptation and this particular kind of temptation. Let me just make a few points of application. Now, we don't know if Potiphar's wife was attractive. We would say probably, I think it's fair, and I'm just, this is all conjecture. But I'd say the intensity of her actions would indicate she was perhaps somewhat younger, possessing keen sexual interest. As a woman of high status, she also would have benefited from every cosmetic advantage. As the wife of a key official in Egypt, we would expect that her beauty would have at least been a matter of careful attention. We don't really know exactly how tempting she may have been to Joseph, but let's assume that Satan was given a real clear shot at Joseph. We have a Bible story book in our home that we read with painted pictures. They're very well done, these pictures. And I'm always never quite sure about this story in that book about makes your blood boil. That'd be this woman's beautiful in this picture, and you just say, whoa. But it, is that right? I, we don't know. But it may well be she was a very attractive woman and Joseph was tempted. I think, as a matter of fact, that that's probably why Joseph ran. He could have overpowered her. He could have gone back and got his cloak, but he's probably saying, I must get out. And now, how did he do it? How did he pull that off? Everything was against him. Well, we thankfully don't have to answer it only from his angle but we have further revelation to aid us this temptation in particular for a man can come on with a burst of force desire cracks open the door of our heart and seats itself at the controls of the flesh the ignition switch is turned and the flesh is driven along a path marked out by Satan's signposts in that moment our desire for the joy of the Lord grows cold in that damnable moment, we seek joy in the temporal, fleshly satisfactions of a Satan-heating world. The clarifying voice of God's Word grows hoarse. The Spirit's conviction is quenched. The cross of Christ and God's warm love fade into the background and everything that is good and everything that is true pleasure is set aside. What do we do in those moments? The New Testament gives us this instruction. This is not intended to be all-inclusive, but just to give us some hooks to hang our thoughts on. The Bible says, first of all, resist. James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's a word of hope from our God. Resist. Stand up. It's the opposite of toy with or play with. Fight it. Resist it. This is not an appeal merely to willpower, but it's saying you've got to stand up to the temptation. Yield your body parts to God's control and fight it. Do battle. Resist the devil. 
Secondly, think Scripture. Jesus laid out for us the example of how to fight temptation. If he needed Scripture to defeat Satan, we are going to need Scripture to defeat Satan. Jesus, Matthew 4, turned up the volume of God's Word in the middle of temptation. It means that we will need to commit Scripture to memory. We don't have it probably there right in front of us as we face a temptation, as Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to pounce, to pounce on someone. You may not have a Bible in hand marked clearly as to where to turn. We need to commit Scripture to memory and use God's Word and allow it to course through our mind. It is a purifying agent, and we need to let it loose. Resist the devil. Think Scripture. Thirdly, run. Run from temptation. I imagine that one reason Joseph ran was because he needed to. He was tempted. But in the spirit of 2 Timothy 2.2, he fled youthful lust. Now fleeing for us is not going to always look just like Joseph, thankfully. This is a rare temptation, but we're going to have to learn to flee in a lot of other ways in our culture and in our setting. We face a major enemy in the media. It's everywhere for all of us. And we need to learn to flee. We need to learn to look away from the billboards, from the television commercials. We need to throw away some advertisements. We need to run. It's not a thing of leaving the stuff there or in front of your face as you're traveling and saying, I can be strong enough in Christ. Just run. We need to get away. It might be running, not necessarily from a particular temptation, but from a relationship to break it off and to leave it alone. Don't try to beat temptation with willpower. We need to run away from temptation and avoid it at all cost. Same idea, pretty much, but let me take one step further and talk for just a moment a word on fidelity in marriage. God's commands for sex are very specific. We're to experience sexual gratification in only one way, within marriage, between a man and a woman. That's it. Every other sexual pleasure is a violation of God's will and constitutes infidelity to our mate, whether we have one or not. To look at someone who is not your mate with lustful thoughts is adultery of the heart, and it's wrong. It's unfaithfulness to your mate, present, or future. To dream about relations with someone who is not your mate is wrong. It is unfaithful to your mate, present, or future. If you're married, to pursue emotional oneness or to engage in flirtatious arousal with someone who is not your mate is wrong. I think that probably victory over temptation is less a matter of sudden spiritual brilliance and more a matter of cumulative faithfulness to one's mate. I say that one more time. I think victory over temptation is less a matter of spiritual, sudden spiritual brilliance and more a matter of cumulative faithfulness to one's mate. Fidelity is not just an issue 
of sexuality. Fidelity is a way of life. And it's a way of life we need to maintain. Resisting the devil. Thinking scripture. And running from temptation. Not toying with it. Maybe to run you need to cancel a subscription. You need to cancel cable. You need to cancel the direction you take to work. Run. You apply it as the Spirit leads. We need to be faithful like Joseph. We can point to Judah. We can point even to Abraham at places and say, well, I'm better than that. Let's use as the model Joseph. By this point, it had become obvious to Potiphar's wife that she was up against something that was much larger than she was. And suddenly her sexual lust is transformed into a passionate lust for vengeance. Verse 13, when she saw that she, he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants, Look, she said to them, this Hebrew, this Hebrew man, I wish the text had left that there, but this Hebrew man has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to lie with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. The, phrase, the Hebrew phrase reads literally, he, he brought in a Hebrew man to sport with us. She refers to her husband as he. It almost makes you wonder if she and the slaves didn't share some antipathy for her husband. He. This guy, did not only all the other things he's done wrong, but he brought in this Hebrew slave to make fun of us Egyptians. Might indicate some mutual animosity. Of all the things he's done, can you believe this? A Hebrew man, she actually says here, the Hebrew phrase, a Hebrew man, the subtlety of her lie is also, uh, let me, Hebrew man, well, that'll make sense in a moment, but Hebrew man, who's she talking to? She's talking to other slaves. It's going to be very conducive to use the word man here, not this Hebrew slave, so as to remind them of their position. But this Hebrew, you're Egyptians, he brought this Hebrew to violate us Egyptians. Can you believe this? Now verse 15, the subtlety of her lie is chilling. He did leave his cloak, and he did run away, and she did scream. But the cloak, the very thing that proves Joseph's innocence in God's eyes, is used to prove him guilty in the eyes of Potiphar's servants. And if it fooled them, she moves to fool her husband with the same story. Verse 16, she kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Now that would be absolutely hilarious if it wasn't such a serious situation. There she sits next to this cloak all day, just waiting there on her perch till she can show her husband and tell him this ridiculous story. Verse 17 then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave, here the phrase now changes from that Hebrew man in the context of her Egyptian slaves to that Hebrew slave as she addresses her husband. That Hebrew slave, you brought us, came to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Notice now that Joseph is that Hebrew slave. 
And we notice that she is not afraid, as with the slaves, so with her husband, to criticize him for this whole fiasco. Her words in verse 8, 17 are a subtle challenge to him to right this wrong and to prove himself the man. You brought him here. This is what he's done. You've brought this on us. He's the animal. I am the virtuous woman. Defend my honor. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Joseph is offered no appeal. He's a slave. He's a living tool. You don't ask a slave what they think. Is it any surprise that Potiphar is angry? I don't think so, but I think there is something very surprising here. And that's that Joseph is not dangling from the end of a cord. Why does he get put in jail? Slaves could be executed for dropping their master's food tray. This slave attempted to rape the master's wife. How does he end up in prison and not on a gallows? Very interesting development here. Commentators have noted that verse 19 does not really say why Potiphar is angry. It speaks of his anger, and it would be very easy for the text to say Potiphar was angry with Joseph. It leaves it very nebulous here, and it's very possible, I would say probable because of where Joseph ends up, that Potiphar doesn't really totally buy the story. And he has great respect for Joseph, and he's probably, as much as anything, angered that he's got to get rid of Joseph because he's got a problem in his home, and he probably realizes the problem is with his wife. And he's got to get this man out of the house or there will be no end of trouble in River City, so to speak. So he puts Joseph in prison. Where does he put him? He puts him in a prison where there are the king's prisoners. Really interesting word here. It's actually the root word roundhouse. He gets put in the roundhouse, but there was this round building dug into the ground with a hole in the top, and Joseph was dropped down through the hole in the top. Reminds him of something, doesn't it? The well back in Palestine, and here he is now in a real, legitimate prison. But this prison is, if there's any parallel to our day, something of a white-collar prison. These are the king's officials who are here in this prison. This is where Joseph lands. He has no appeal, but he isn't executed. We don't really know, but it's very strange that he ends up here. Strange, unless we remember that it is God who is behind the scene. And think of the injustice we see God and we note His providence here. Just stop for a moment and consider again the injustice and the oppression. After all He's done, now Joseph ends up in prison. As if it were not enough to be sold into slavery by your brothers, now he sinks even lower than slavery into prison. He's a criminal. This is not a fair world, and Joseph was figuring that out. He was learning that the righteous suffer. Sometimes they suffer for their righteousness. That's the way that it is in a fallen world. From Joseph's example, we hear and we cheer behind him, do right, do what is right, 
it might mean that you lose your job. It might mean that you lose popularity at school. Kids at school are not going to stand up in line to cheer you for being virtuous. But the key is this, we cannot get caught up with the immediate results. We must remember that the Lord is with us as his people. Joseph did right and he suffered for it, but God always has the last word. Right rarely prevails immediately, but right always prevails in the end. We must patiently plow the furrow that is assigned to us. We must do right and trust God to pen the last chapter. Joseph's status had taken yet another turn downward. But we read at verse 20, the latter part of the verse, but while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness, has said, loving covenant loyalty, and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Down he goes into slavery. Up he rises in slavery. Down he goes into prison, and up he rises once again, because God is writing the story. It is a world that is not fair, but that is a statement that is applicable only to this world. God is God. He knows the end from the beginning, and the story is never finished until he writes the last chapter. Oppression, injustice, suffering for wrong, they're part of this fallen world, but there's a God in heaven who awaits, and we rest in him. Let's bow for a word of prayer.